0: Good evening,
1: wherever you may be, and welcome to this episode of Stories from the Vortex. I'm Matthew Kressel, and I'm joined once again by Mary Lang. Hello! This episode sees us making our first sojourn into non-Big Finish Doctor Who territory. We're going to be going back in time to July 2001, where we'll be looking at the very first Doctor Who webcast, Death Comes to Time. (laughs)
0: Once, long ago, on an island in a sea of clouds, there was a land where giants walked. And the giants lived amongst the other peoples of that land. And they used their great strength to help them. But the power of the giants was too great. Their hands were too strong, their tread too heavy. And the more they tried to help the people, The greater was the destruction that they caused until the people they had tried to help were no more. And the giants were alone, and the island was laid waste. And in their shame, the giants built a temple. And there they swore that never again must they meddle in the affairs of mortal men. And then they scattered, ever to wander abroad in repentance, until the twilight of the world, until death comes to time.
1: Death Comes to Time, as we said before, was the first Doctor Who webcast. It was originally aired in inverted commas on the BBC's Doctor Who website, initially with the first episode going up in July 2001, and the rest of it going out in early spring uh, and the beginning of summer 2002. Now, the interesting thing about this is the fact that it was originally, the first episode was originally produced as a pilot for a new Doctor Who series for BBC Radio 4 by a gentleman named Dan Freeman, who we'll probably talk about a bit more as this goes along. And he, in fact, came to it not as a Doctor Who fan, but by somebody who had seen Sylvester McCoy's performances of, I believe it was a series of Beckett monologues at the Edinburgh Friend Festival in the late 90s. And that was kind of where he got the idea that, you know, oh, let's do more Doctor Who with Sylvester. Not really being aware that the Paul McGann TV movie had happened and it had come and Doctor Who was this dead property. And he apparently really struggled to get this all, whole project off the ground. He just couldn't get anybody interested. And finally, when he got, was able to get Radio 4 to let him do the first episode of this as the pilot, Radio 4 then turned around and dropped it and said they weren't interested in Doctor Who anymore. So what happened at that point was, having recorded the first episode, it was sent along to the website department at the BBC, who, along with some very primitive animation, shall we say, I think it's, as you were saying before we started recording, Mary, it's more akin to illustrations than animation.
2: Yeah, creatively it, done, but uh, yeah, but still still pictures,
1: Yeah,
2: and, uh, not moving ones.
1: Very good artwork by uh, Lee Sullivan, who's probably best known for his work on the Doctor Who magazine comic strip. Um, and that was released in July 2001 and landed with a resounding bang because I think it had something akin to a million views within a very short period of time. And the BBC then turned around and said, we need the rest of it. And apparently Dan Freeman was like, we didn't record it, remember? Huh. So they then had to turn around throughout, I think, the late 2001, early 2002 to actually put the whole thing together and get it ready. And the results are very interesting, uh, to say the least, because I think it's a very different vision of the Doctor Who universe than most of us are used to. And I think something that's made it controversial in some circles is the fact that it is Almost an alternative ending to the Sylvester McCoy era of Doctor Who in a big way. Because this is a story that I think turns certain aspects and notions of the Doctor Who universe on its head.
2: Well, Plus it gives a very different view of the Doctor. Right. Sylvester McCoy's Doctor is very different in this.
1: Yes. Well, not only is he very different, the Time Lords on the whole it seems, or at least the group of them we meet in this story. True. The Fraction, as they're referred to, mm-hmm. are very, very different from really anything we've encountered in the TV series. With, I think, maybe the exception of their first introduction in The War Games. But I think that that partly comes from the fact that Dan Freeman, who also wrote this, even though it's credited to Colin Meek, which is a, it, interesting because as Dan Freeman, I believe, says in the interview, that he wanted he wanted a name on the script that was a very radio four style writer and he thought Colin Meek was a perfect name but also I know from an interview Ned Fountain who script edited this has said that he had no idea until well after it was over with that Dan Freeman had in fact written the script because the impression he got was that this Colin Meek was somebody that Dan had known and he was going back and forth with and the impression he got was the reason that Dan Freeman didn't put his name on the script was that he wanted honest opinions about it without the person he was talking to about the script being aware that he was also the writer. It's a rather nifty thing to do actually.
2: Yeah I have a question. Yes. Um, You said that the pilot came out in in, uh, 2001. Right. Uh, So it was broadcast. Yeah. But then there was no more of it broadcast until early 2002.
1: What happened was that the pilot was done with, you know, the pilot was done in, I think, 2000 or early 2001 and BBC Radio 4 rejected it and said they weren't going to air it because, you know, they I think was, if I remember what Dan Freeman has said, right? There was a management change at Radio 4 and that the management that had commissioned it left and the new one came in and was like, yeah you know, it had the big typical BBC attitude of the time towards Doctor Who. So it got shunted along, as it were, down the corridor to the website. The website was the one who put it up just on, you know, put it up on their put it up on the website. It was, as I understand it, the BBC's first online drama, as it were. But they only put out the first episode because they didn't necessarily know there was going to be any interest in it whatsoever. And then there turned out to be a whole lot of interest in it. As As I said, I think there was around a million hits or something on the first episode alone.
2: Okay, but then they had to reassemble everybody to record
1: some more of it or all of it? The rest of it, the latter four episodes of it, were all recorded later with everybody having to be reassembled and brought back together
2: yeah well i just wonder how people remembered the the story threads from the pilot to the to the uh the following episodes unless they
1: re-aired the pilot along with them well it was it was available on the website so people could just go to it it's a bit like i guess you know like a tv series on netflix or something okay uh, where people could just go back to it and could listen to it or watch it again if they wanted to okay but it was a, it first and foremost created, I think, as audio drama. Um, hence why we're reviewing it here, because otherwise it would just, it would be like Scream of the Shalka*. was later on. It'd be this interesting little sidestep. It's a sidestep in its own right, but it's a very odd sidestep. You were saying earlier, it's, it's a very different take on McCoy's Doctor, and it's a very different take on the Time Lords and really the whole Doctor Who universe in general. Uh, though I would argue having said that that if you think about where McCoy's doctor was going on TV in the later years of the show, um, they were building him up to being this darker more mysterious character as it were.
2: Mm-hmm. Which is how he comes across in this.
1: Yes and also the fact that they were they were planning on sending you know Ace off to Gallifrey to, to into the Time Lord Academy to potentially become a Time Lord which is a major plot threat of this as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it's interesting that it kind of picks up on those threads, but it seems to completely ignore everything that kind of had happened since then in terms of the novels and uh, the Big Finish audios and especially the Paul McGann TV movie, especially in the ending, which well, I guess we'll talk about later on because the ending, I think, is the thing that really, really uh, makes this controversial in particularly the circles that do remember it. But I think that, you know, we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's important I think to kind of look at this story on its own rather than I think trying to maybe fit it in with the rest of the doctor who universe if that makes any sense it's something that it needs to be judged on its own merits because I think it's a very much an outsider's point of view I think of the doctor who universe but it's yeah I know I've heard an interview Dan Freeman did on adventures in space time and music with Dr Phil Talking about that his whole idea when he came to it was sort of Wagner's Twilight of the Gods. The idea of the end of one era and the beginning of another, which is really what this whole story and across its five episodes is really about. Is this group sort of the sort of literally death comes to time in a way? That it's sort of, you know, the end of one era and the beginning of another. And, you know, this small group of Time Lords who appear to be all that's left, or maybe this is the actual hierarchy of the Time Lords, I don't know, it's something that's never quite, made very specific, and, you know, something I personally like about it is the fact that it is a bit, in that regard, vague. But it's something that really, I think, sets it apart. But I think that getting to set it apart, you get to look at things from very different angles. McCoy's Doctor is a perfect example of that, I think you know, it sort of combines the different elements of his character that we saw on TV. You know, we saw him as both as sort of a clown and as this sort of master manipulator. And I think there's an interesting balance between the two here. I mean, if you look at his moments with Antimony, which is the sort of companion for a lot of this, are very comedic most of the time. There's a wonderful sort of flippant relationship between the two of them. But there's also, I think, a very almost tragic element to it, this sort of tired old man who's Sort of watching everything he spent his whole life putting together and fighting for being basically torn apart right in front of him. And sort of one you know, trying to figure out, what do I have to do here? The fact that McCoy really is able to bring that tragicness and that darkness with him. And to be able to portray these two very different sides of the character. And, you know, given, as I've said, you know, I think that, you know, if you think about what happened to his doctor in the TV movie. He steps out of the TARDIS. He gets shot. He dies on the operating table. That's the end of his doctor. And there's a part of me that really wishes that this was the way he had gone out in the, I guess, we'll we'll say proper Doctor Who universe. You know, that this had been the way he would have exited rather than, you know, dying on a hospital table via, you know, malpractice, as it were. You know, McCoy's doctor, I think it is, it's very interesting what they do with him here. It's something that I think builds on what they did with him in the TV series, but it's something very different and very unique in its own right. And I think that that's true really that's true really, of the whole thing for that matter. There's a lot it's a very good cast in this, and I think that that's a huge that, cast, it's a huge cast. It's a very good cast. I think the fact that Doctor Who had been off the air for as long as it had been, and the fact that this was outside of the McGann TV movie, this was the first time that the BBC itself had actually tried doing a Doctor Who production in quite some time. Um, And they're able to get the most extraordinary cast in this. I mean, Stephen Fry Mm -hmm. playing the Minister of Chance.
2: And Anthony Stewart Head is in it.
1: Right. Anthony Stewart Head is in it. I mean, there's, you know, and he sort of makes a cameo in it, but so does, you know, Jacqueline Pierce, who we've talked about with playing Servaland in Blake 7.
2: Yeah. When I heard that voice, I thought, I know that voice. And I had to look up to see who
1: played uh, the Admiral. And it's like, oh, it's Evelyn. It's amazing, you know, they get people like, like Anthony Stewart Head and Jacqueline Pearson to basically do one scene in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But getting their presence in the thing lends so much to those characters that they play. You literally show up for one scene, but they're small but pivotal is, I guess, the way of putting it. It's sort of, um, I guess, what they started. a lot of movies used to do with Orson Welles, which is the fact that, They would cast Wells in this small but pivotal part, and the whole movie would gravitate around him. Think about Harry Lyman, the third man, for example. But um, you also look think about the other members of the cast. I mean, you get John Sessions playing the villain in this, Tannis, Mm -hmm. who's sort of bent on universal domination. But it's also, I think, far more than just a megalomaniac at the same time. There is a sense of threat to him that I quite like. And the fact that he, I think like all good villains, he there's a flippancy to him, but he can turn around and kill you in the next moment as well, which is something I very much enjoy you know, from villain performances when you, they have some depth to them. Stephen Fry's Minister of Chance, who we just talked about a second ago, is a I mean, really, really good performance from him, because I think most of us are used to seeing Stephen Fry from his more comedic parts. You think about his... Um, Jeeves and the Jeeves and Wooster series that he did with Hugh Laurie or um, his various comedy work. I mean, I haven't seen him do a whole lot of dramatic roles or maybe I'm just not watching the right stuff. I don't know. But he gets to play dramatic as well as comedy here. And I think that he brings a lot of the character, I should say, as well as his performance, brings a lot of the sense of gloom and tragedy to this the sense of inevitability you know and that he comes in at the beginning sort of you know talking about the fact that you know that we could he could do you know great things and he could change this that and the other and he spends the entire story sort of battling his own demons and i think that you know the story is really about his fall from grace as as much as anything else i think but as for the story
2: it takes place in uh five different chapters and uh, I have to confess, you know, I come to this with not all the background that you did. Um, and I had a great deal of, of difficulty in that first chapter called At the Temple of the Fourth, um, trying to keep straight all the different um, environments that are being introduced. They're, they're talking about several different planets um, and different places on these planets. We have different um, groups of people in each one of these scenes and I found myself being very confused as to oh where are we now and who are these people because in the course of one story they must introduce fifteen or more people. <laughs> so I it, to help myself, I went online to see, oh somebody's got to help me figure out at least you know this this opening salvo of people and scenes and planets and and all that to get them all straight and thank goodness Wikipedia, Came along, and uh, someone was nice enough to do some summaries of the of each of the chapters. So that really helped me figure out who is who and who who's talking and where we are yeah. in each one of these scenes. Um, because what it's doing is setting up the threads of various stories that are going to weave in and out through the rest of the the tale. Um, so, I'm talking to anyone else who has tried to listen to this, and I have tried listening to it in the past and found myself to just be lost. That there is a resource that can help you straighten out who everybody is and um, what the various scenes are.
1: Yeah, the, the plot summaries on Wikipedia are very detailed. Yeah, they are. And um, it's great. Yeah, which is, I think is a great help to anybody who sort of gets lost in it because it is this, it is a big epic story it is you go from this big huge cast of people that sort of populates these big worlds that the story takes place in. i mean in the first episode you go from santony to myson island and from there you go to earth to canis which is the home planet of this sort of where you know this invading force is from and then you go to gallifrey and back to earth it's yeah this
2: the the keynesian invasion of the santine republic is going on
1: yes that is how the story opens i mean it opens with this beautiful um sort of speech by leonard fenton's Casmus that is absolutely stunning and from that you go into big explosions and invasion and everything else and something i think that did cause some derision when this came out was the fact that a lot of people went oh it's Doctor Who trying to do Star Wars because this was right after uh, the first of the prequel movies, The Phantom Menace, had come out. But I think that people who said that, I think we're giving it a very sort of shallow analysis, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the story is that way too. We're dealing with with massive um, battles and explosions, and then we're switching to um, a mystical setting, um, and then we're we're... On another planet where the, the, the doctor and um, and his companion, Antimony, um, who I don't think we've seen before and I guess we won't ever see again. I think yeah. he's just within this story. Interesting companion. I wasn't sure to make of him what to make of him for a while until I heard later um, what what and how he came about.
1: Yeah, it's the, the Antimony character is, is interesting. I mean, he's very much comedic. Uh, foil, I suppose is the way to put it. And call him
2: comedic. I found him rather sad.
1: Well, he was sad in the end, but I found him. I think he was used a lot for comedic effect up till that final scene with him.
2: Hmm. No, he he seemed like a like a stupid child. Um, it, what you took to be humor, I took to be him trying to figure things out. So I, I didn't see the comedic in him.
0: Hmm.
2: I suddenly feel like a horrible person now, Mary. Thank oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh so that's why i was curious about when this pilot was shown and and what time what people's reaction to it what were if it was the, the same kind of confusion that i experienced and from what i've seen posted other people did too they i'm surprised there was that much interest because i would if i had seen or heard this first off i would have said oh my goodness i don't have what it takes to try to figure this out
1: Hmm. i mean it was uh, yeah i think that we sort of reached a point keeping in mind that it was 2001 it was july 2001 i think when the pilot went out or was first shown on on, online Mm -hmm. and it was you know five six years after the mcgann tv movie Mm -hmm. um not including the novels and the big finish audience there hadn't really been a whole lot of new doctor who I think, in a way, this was the closest that people had had yet to a new series. And the fact that it was the BBC itself that had sort of made it and was putting it out, I think is what got a lot of people's attention. I think that the rest of the episodes did never quite get the same download figures.
2: Well, you go on to the the second um, episode or chapter, Planet of Blood, and we're introducing another entirely different storyline, more new characters, And a whole vampire theme that was not even hinted at, I think, in the first chapter. So I found that uh, kind of startling. Yeah. You don't expect a vampire story in the middle of a Doctor Who story. State of Decay, Project Twilight. Well, I mean, when the whole story is around it, that's one thing. But I mean, you know, just suddenly new and very isolated because you move on to, to, to chapter three and that whole vampire thing is gone now
1: yeah it's it's a very weirdly constructed story i, I noticed when i listened to it this most recent time i think that what events the fact that they come to earth is the fact that they're coming to earth has been set up in the towards the end of the first episode with the sort of the meeting between the doctor and the minister of chance that there's been this event on Earth, and that sets up what we're going into. But as you say, the fact that it suddenly becomes a big vampire thing yeah. in Episode 2 is kind of, it comes out of nowhere, which is something I've never really struck me before until, as I said, I listened to it this most recent time, having not heard it in a bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it goes right back, and then between that, it sort of cuts back into the sort of this mystical thing of Casmus and Ace, and Ace basically being educated, as it were
2: yeah which which i found very mm, not, not easy to swallow uh, because it seemed like all casmus was doing was leading her around and talking to her very enigmatically um about the forces of the universe that ace never really seemed to grasp i mean she would say okay or she would you know agree with him or whatever but what she was really taking in and how that was changing her was never apparent mm, throughout right. these stories or these
1: actors. I think it becomes apparent towards the very end, but while it's actually going on, I don't think it's necessarily apparent. But I think, that, as you say, that Caspian spends a lot of time talking enigmatically, and I think maybe it's something where having her having had the luxury, I guess, of having heard this several times over the last few years,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where I feel like every time I listen to it, I pick up on something new. As I said, I'm listening to it this most recent time, I noticed the sort of the weird construction of it that you were pointing out there, which is something that just simply had never occurred to me before. But I think that a lot of what he's saying ends up illustrating what's going on, or what's happening or what's going to happen in other parts of the story. It's maybe a bit heavy on the whole philosophical thing. It's a bit like the original Russian film of Solaris, which I, I think so. I read a review one time where somebody said that the philosophical stuff in that was as thick as ozone, um, <laughs> which I think might possibly apply to here as well. But I, I accept it for being trying to do something different and trying to do something new. I th- as I said, I've had the luxury of hearing it so many times that I can't quite remember what my first feelings about it were in that regard. I'm sure, having heard it the first time or two, I probably didn't understand it at all. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that it's stuff that's really building on what the themes of the story are going to be. Um, And also, I think that it does sort of leave an impact on Ace, but it's something that's not clear until the 11th hour, as it were, when the story is reaching its climax. It's something that maybe could have been better handled. But I think that might have been maybe an experience on the part of Dan Freeman. I don't know.
2: Well, you mean, and how do you write a story about someone becoming a time lord? If you're not born on Gallifrey and you don't go through the academy and all of the mental conditioning that they went through, um, how does one just absorb it all, you know, walking around with a mystic who keeps telling you, you know, know, these hard to understand concepts? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so it's just like I've been, you know, Doubtful about some of these uh, love relationships that seem to happen in a very short time. I know that we are dealing with a short period of time with this, yeah, uh, but for me, it's hard to swallow that she could become a time lord after such a short exposure to all of this information.
1: Yeah, I mean there's the line late in the story that Casmus has about do you think that anatomy or birth or appearance or whatever. Uh, sort of determines what who, may, who makes us what we are, uh, which I think maybe tries to, I'm going to say, paper over. that yeah. he has it intrinsically in her to be that? I mean, it's a possibility. I mean, this is, I was reading the CD booklet that came with the edition I have of this, the, the CD thing of it, the CD version of it, that talks about the fact that she is, this is a good decade or more on from the girl we last saw walking off into the sunset with the Doctor in Survival that she certainly maybe has not lost all of that, that attitude that she had. I mean, clearly she hasn't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think Sophie Aldred does a good job of portraying a, uh, a slightly older ace yeah, in yeah. this.
2: Yeah, but, but not losing any of her spunk.
1: Yes, which I think is very important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I think it, it's an argument as well. I think maybe they might even be, in story terms, an act of desperation on the part of Casmus and the Doctor because they are foreseeing what's fixing to happen to them. And what's about to happen to the Time Lords, for that matter. I think it it is something, I think, that, you know, if you think too deeply about, which is, I'm saying this, and it's kind of ironic, given this is a story entirely about thinking deeply about things. um, Mm -hmm. That maybe if you think too deeply about things that might not work, I said, I I, I don't know. I mean, as as I said, I I feel like having heard it so many times now that I can't quite go back to what my first impressions were, which I think is what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, but I I think the most telling thing, uh, the the thing that was most revealing to me in the teachings of Casmus to Ace was his story about the the painter. Oh, yes. And that inability to grasp what is outside of your um, reality. Yes. Basically. Um, And and that theme comes up periodically through the story. Uh, So... Yes, you know, I, I get it that it is hard to grasp those things, and and that's what made me wonder if Ace ever did, because to be a time lord, you are stepping outside of normal human reality and seeing the universe in a different way. Um, and I mean, I I'm not sure that by the end she was able to do that.
0: Hmm.
1: She might not have a choice, given the, given the way the story is, for that yeah, matter. Yeah. A, it, yeah, sorry. I
2: was going to say, we go from chapter two, which is the vampire story, into chapter three, which now we are into torture and manipulation and cruelty and brutality.
1: It gets very dystopian very quickly.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, so that that's the, like the theme of that story. Um, As Tannis uses every, you know, pretty much arrow in his quiver to um, control and manipulate the people around him, he he seems to take great joy in doing that, in his ability to
1: do that. Yeah, and I think that's also true of the fourth episode as well, where he's basically able to set the doctor, well, he's going to set basically the course for the doctor and the minister to have sort of a big clash between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And I think, and that's the episode, I think, that where I really talk about the the minister of Chance's personal demons kind of come to a head. The thoughts he can't quite get rid of, or as the the doctor, in fact, puts it to him in the first episode about, you know, have you not thought these thoughts and forgotten them already?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And if you have, you know, and it's been, I think, very clear what's going to happen. As I said, it's that sense of inevitability throughout this story that things are going to go disastrously wrong. I think, really comes to a head in that fourth episode because you have you, both the minister and the doctor losing very badly because of Tanis.
2: Well, the the fourth episode is structured very interestingly in that it pairs up the minister with uh, Sala. Yes. And Cosmos with Ace. Right. And, oh, who is the doctor? Well, Pair- the
1: doctor's with Antimony. and uh, a rhyme. Spends a lot of the episode, you know, when we kind of get to him in sort of a confrontation with Tannis.
2: Yeah, but what I want to get to is that there is this rapid change of um, scene. We keep jumping from one to the other, and interestingly enough, what is happening in one is immediately reflected in the other. Right. And, And they keep jumping, you know, among them, In these pairings, and and I found this to be fascinating writing, um, and in how each one is on a different course, but they're saying almost identical things, right, (laughs) and doing almost identical things, and I thought that that was a very very creative chapter.
1: Yeah, and I think having very different reactions, yeah, to it as well, and the fact you know, and it's I think in you know the fifth episode, the final one, appropriately called "Death Comes to Time" as well. Mm-hmm. It is the big finale of this. It is every story thread, all of the plot elements and stuff all coming together, finally converging after four episodes work. And suddenly everything begins to tie together. You find out why Casmus has been training Ace. You find out what Tanis has been really after and what he's about to do. And I talked about earlier that the Doctor ends up basically having to decide what's the price I'm going to pay for everything I've ever fought for. Mm-hmm. And is this the, I think, have we reached the point that it's appropriate to talk about the ending? <laughs> well, you already are, so <laughs> go on. The ending of this is very interesting. The end, the ending of this, and there is no other way to talk about it but to go into slightly spoilery territory. Well, slightly spoilery territory. It's about, the, spoilers are going to come thick and fast.
2: Yeah, well, this is
1: like 13 years old. It is 13 years old, that is very true, but you know, we, try, we desperately try to avoid spoilers on anything that we talk about, yeah. but there just is no other way to avoid it because the ending of this is what makes it controversial, I think, in certain circles, mm-hmm. which is the fact that the whole story basically sets up that the Time Lords, or at least this group of Time Lords we meet in this story, uh, who call themselves the Fraction, the Doctor, the Minister of Chance, Chasmus, the Saints... Valentine, yeah. Yeah, uh, who Vanity Stewart Head plays, and Tannis himself, to a certain extent. Yeah. The Time Lords, it's taking the Time Lords back to kind of their roots, in a way, in the war games, and in particularly the Barry Letts era, where the Time Lords were always slightly more mystical. There was always this sort of godlike ability to them. And they are introduced here as the gods of the fourth. Presumably that's the fourth dimension, being Time Lords, it would make sense. Mm -hmm. They have this godlike ability over time that they choose not to exercise because of what's in the opening monologue, which refers to the events at Meissen Island where they did try to interfere. Mm -hmm. Um, And they basically destroyed the world, which is an interesting similarity back to, I don't know if you've seen Underworld, Mary, the Tom Baker story. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Time Lords with the Minoans in that, Mm -hmm. having interfered with that civilization, the civilization destroys itself. Yes. Which is what's hinted at happened here as well. And the fact is that Tannis has basically been playing everybody off against everybody and killing everybody else off so that he can exert this ability. And the whole thing comes to this incredible three or four minute confrontation at Stonehenge, of all places. (laughs) Talk about an appropriate thing if you're talking about the twilight of the gods and the end of one era and the beginning of another. That the big confrontation between the Doctor and Tannis is at Stonehenge. And the story basically ends with the Doctor destroy, having to destroy Tanis because if he doesn't, you know, as he says himself, time must be left to its own devices.
2: Yeah, and Tanis is so confident that the Doctor will not harm him because that's their creed.
1: Yeah. If there be blood on my sword, let it be my own, as I think Valentine puts it earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Doctor basically goes, you know what? You've played us all off against each other. It's my life versus the rest of the universe and to quote from another famous science fiction series the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one and the the doctor basically dies at the end of this taking Tannis with him and that's where the thing on the artwork of the huge sort of blast uh, coming out of stonehenge comes from which is very uh 1979 nigel neal quatermass but i'm throwing in my quatermass reference there because that's that's the reoccurring theme from that is the blast of light hitting these stone circles yes um which i can't help but wonder about because it's the it's this exact same image it's too similar for me to completely dismiss i have to say
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but it ends basically uh, with the kingmaker saying that the time lords are no more and here is Ace, who's basically going to go off. It's literally a new age, mm-hmm. um, as Nicholas Courtney's Brigadier puts it, because the you know the Canadians through Tannis show up to invade the Earth, and you get one of my favorite ever Doctor Who moments of um, Tannis confronting George Bush of all people. Yeah. yes, George Bush, Tony Blair. They're all involved. Yes, and it all gets involved. It's a big it's a very different kind of Doctor Who alien invasion than you than certainly I think we've been we're used to on the T V series where the invasions tend to be slightly more discreet. This is this is the one where the world leaders get involved in the middle of it and UNIT gets involved in the middle of it, which leads, as I said, to one of my favorite ever Doctor Who moments of the fleet basically saying, you know, you are being contacted by the forces of and of all people Nicholas Courtney's Brigadier going and you have the misfortune of being spoken to by the brigadier. Yeah. Get out of my solar system, yeah um, and it's this great wonderful moment the fact the, the fact that this exists primarily on audio rather than as the original very limited animations more illustrated version I think is really good because something I think we've talked about before is that on audio the pictures in your mind are a whole lot better anyways uh-huh. well, the, the illustration animations are not too bad, yeah, I mean yeah keeping in mind that it was. Two thousand one and internet speeds were literally a fraction <laughs> of what they are today.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think the fact that it, you know, the fact that it exists primarily on audio, I think, is a good thing for it because it gives you the ability to imagine these big landscapes. The the big battle sequences look a whole lot better in your mind than they do through those illustrations. As good as those illustrations are, and
2: I have to uh, to laugh at the idea that unit has become so efficient and effective that they can wipe out uh, an invading force, whereas on television <laughs> unit was always a little bit on the bumbling side
1: yes. and it could never quite shoot straight as I said it's a very different vision of the Doctor Who universe in a way yes, but I think that the fact that unit suddenly shows up in the middle of it, I think has led to a lot of confusion as people are going, okay. Is this a continuation of the TV series? Is it this own little parallel universe? If it's own parallel universe, what is Unit doing in the middle of it? And it's like people can't really sort of get their heads around it. Right. It Um, doesn't
2: fit on a spreadsheet neatly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a very, I think because Dan Freeman wasn't a Doctor Who fan and came to it wanting to work with Sylvester and Sophie. And then went in, I think, with a very basic knowledge of the show. I mean, it's, it is it is literally what we would call a reimagining or a reboot mm-hmm. of Doctor Who. And I think if you look at it from that perspective, it's pretty darn good. It's this big, epic story of good and evil and time and the ends of eras and these big thematic elements that are going on in it.
2: Yes, lots of story threads, big cast. And very densely written and very creatively written. Yes.
1: It's it's sort of this forgotten little gem, in a way, mm-hmm. um, from the wilderness years. And I think the fact that it doesn't easily fit into the show's continuity because of the ending, and the fact that McCoy's doctor seems to die, seems to just get killed off, rather than turning into Paul McGann. And there's, you know, an ace seems to be the only one that's left and the time Lords are gone. And a lot of people are sitting there scratching their heads going, Okay, not canon, I don't care. My own attitude towards it is that I'm also a Sherlock Holmes fan, as people may have guessed from us having done the Sherlock Holmes episode. And there's a lot of Sherlock Holmes pastiches out there, and some like Nicholas Myers' The 7% Solution, which rewrite huge chunks of the Sherlock Holmes canon in the process of telling a story. But I I, I want to enjoy a good story. If it doesn't fit into the canon necessarily, then fine, I'll accept it. Give me a good story. And I think that Death Comes to Time certainly delivers that.
2: Yeah, and and as you have listened to it several times over the years, you say you get something new out of it each time you listen. And and since I listened to it only partially once before, um, but all the way through this time, I can see that it's something that would reveal little nuggets every time you listen.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's... Things in the performances, there's nuances in the story, all the various plot threads and stuff that I think do that. and I and the performances in this are are magnificent, from McCoy especially, but also Stephen Fry's Minister of Chance, and you know it, it's just it's you know, this big epic cast, it's, it's an epic. it's Doctor Who very rarely does epic, even in the new series, I think it very rarely does this kind of big epic storytelling at least on a scale that's discernible. Because I think there's an argument to be made that Moffat likes his epic storylines, which aren't necessarily easy to follow, which is you know, one of the reasons I think he comes in for a lot of criticism. But that's neither here nor there. I think that if you choose to view this as something different from your average Doctor Who story, as a different take to Doctor Who, I think you can enjoy it on those terms. If you're going in expecting your typical traditional Doctor Who story, I think you might be a bit disappointed, but I think you might also find something very different and very unique instead.
2: Well, have we uh, wrapped that one up?
1: I think we have. Okay. So what are we doing next week? Oh, uh, Next time, we're going to be looking at something that's far closer to the TV series. We're going to be looking at Philip Hinchcliffe Presents, the Big Finish's big fourth Dr. Buck set. It apparently is going to take us back to Saturday tea time in 1977 all over again. Whether it actually will this time, we'll find out. So I'm very much looking forward to listening to that.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to get into that, yes.
1: Especially having Philip Hinchcliffe, who, you know, that's an era of the show that's seen by a lot of people as being a golden age. And him actually coming back and being involved with it. it certainly makes it very exciting and very interesting. So, if you'd like to send in your thoughts on that, or your thoughts on Death Comes to Time, or really anything Doctor Who audio-related, you can do so at feedback.vortex at yahoo.com. You can also join our Facebook group, and of course, you can find our website at storiesfromthevortex.blogspot.com. So, uh, until next time, I guess it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. So long. Thanks for all the fish. Take care.